Before I came to St. Peter and St. Paul's, I worked with dying people and their families as a hospice chaplain. And in that work, I was keenly aware that when somebody died, that patient's family was entering a new era of their lives. There would be their lives before dad died and after dad died. And sometimes I would enter into the scene right as things were passing from one era to another. In that liminal space where someone's father or husband or brother or son was still lying in the bed where he had been breathing just an hour ago, but now his breath and his spirit was gone. He was right here, and yet he really wasn't there anymore. The reality of death is confusing and disorienting. Intellectually, we all know that all of us are going to die, but something lulls us into believing that the people we love will be exempt somehow. C.S. Lewis suggests that the reason death feels so unnatural is that we were never meant to die in the first place. We were created for immortality by God. And death coming with the fall when humanity sinned against God feels like a foreign intruder because that's exactly what it is. If death is disorienting for us, it was no less so for the followers of Jesus. In just six days, they had watched their rabbi, who many of them believed to be the Messiah, go from being praised as he was entering Jerusalem to being condemned to death for blasphemy and then crucified. How could this man that they had followed from Galilee, whom they had seen heal people, heal many, many people, how could he be dead? And what were they supposed to do now? These were just some of the questions that the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who was likely the mother of James and Joseph, may have been asking themselves as they made their way to the tomb of Jesus very early on Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath. Now they knew exactly where the tomb was because they had been there when Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a follower of Jesus, received Jesus' body, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in his own tomb. These two women returned to that tomb. Now, other gospel accounts suggest that they were coming to further prepare Jesus' body for burial, having little time to do so on Friday as the sun was setting and the Sabbath was beginning. But what these women didn't know were some other developments that had taken place since Friday. You see, on the Sabbath, 
the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate and asked him to make sure that the tomb of Jesus was under guard. They said, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception would be worse than the first. So it wasn't enough for them that Jesus was dead. They wanted to make sure that he stayed dead and that no one could say otherwise. They needed Jesus's body to remain in that tomb. So Pilate allowed them to take a guard of soldiers who sealed the tomb shut and kept watch. Now between the Roman seal on the tomb and the soldiers guarding it, there was no way anyone was gonna get in or come out of that tomb or so they thought. And then in the 28th chapter of Matthew's gospel, we read, and suddenly there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Now I want you to pay attention here to what we do not hear in Matthew's account. We do not hear Jesus sneaking out of the tomb at this point. The stone was not rolled away for Jesus's benefit. He was already gone. The tomb was already empty. Resurrected bodies, as the gospel accounts reveal to us, are very fleshy, they're real. They can eat food, but they do not need doors to make entrances or exits. They're a bit advanced. And so all the seals and all the guards in the world were not going to prevent the Lord's plans. The chief priests were right to be worried about Jesus's promise that he would rise again on the third day. And he kept his word and he didn't need the help of his followers to pull it off. The guards, having witnessed the earthquake and the angel rolling back the stone of the tomb and sitting on it, were in shock. Matthew writes, the guards shook and became like dead men. Now, I can't help but think that Matthew is having a little bit of fun with his wording here. Because there's a dead man who is now alive and a whole guard of soldiers who are practically dead from fear. Now, to be fair, fear is the universal response to seeing an angel. But in this case, the angel does not address the soldiers at all. Instead, he turns his full attention to the women approaching the tomb. He says to them, do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. If death is confusing, 
resurrection is even more so. Imagine going to a funeral home where your loved one's body has been transported to and the funeral home director says, I'm sorry, his body is not here for he has been raised. What would you feel? Shock, disbelief, anger, confusion. As much as these women did not want to believe that Jesus had died, they had witnessed his crucifixion. They saw his body removed from the cross and laid in the tomb. They knew in their bones that he was dead. And yet, this angel was telling them otherwise. And this is where the importance of the stone rolling away comes in. If you can, turn around, look at our resurrection window over there. You see the angel? The angel is gesturing to the empty tomb. The angel says, come see the place where he lay. Now, I imagine they did look inside, still half expecting to see Jesus' body there. But the tomb was indeed empty. The angel told the two Marys that they needed to go and tell Jesus' disciples that he had been raised from the dead and that he was going ahead of them to Galilee to meet them there. Now, at this point in the story, I'd like us to pause and consider how a few different groups of people are reacting to this same news. Presumably, these soldier guards saw and heard everything that the, that the women did at the tomb. There had been an earthquake, an angel, an empty tomb. So what were these guards going to do about it? Did they fall down on their faces and repent of their sins? No, it turns out their souls were not their main concern at that point, but rather the earthly consequences of failing to complete what should have been an easy job, keeping a corpse in a tomb. If they were Roman soldiers, then they all would have expected to be executed for their failure. This was not a difficult job. And so out of fear and desperation, part of the guard went to the chief priests and told them everything that had happened. Now imagine the chief priests hearing the news. This was the worst case scenario. The tomb was empty as they feared it would be, but since the tomb had been sealed and there had been soldiers guarding it, how could they claim that Jesus' followers took the body. Their plan backfired on them. Worse, now these soldiers were telling stories about the appearance of an angel? Could it have occurred to them at this point that perhaps, maybe, just maybe, the man that they were so intent on sentencing to death for blasphemy Perhaps he was actually sent by God? Had they been wrong about Jesus? If these thoughts pass through their minds, the Gospels do not record it. 
Instead, Matthew reports that they talked the situation over with the elders and together put together a plan that would attempt to answer any questions that might arise about this empty tomb. You see, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and told them, you must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, ordinarily, admitting to such a huge mistake would be a death sentence, but the chief priests promised to use their influence to save the soldiers' lives. Matthew writes, so they took the money and did as they were directed. I can't help but wonder if one or more of these soldiers eventually admitted to themselves and maybe others of what they actually witnessed. Did any of them put their faith in Jesus? It was one thing to lie to others, but how could they explain the empty tomb and the angel to themselves? Still, Matthew's gospel suggests that the soldiers and the religious leaders chose to save their own lives and reputations over grappling with the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Whether a Jewish religious leader or a Roman soldier contemplating the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead and was indeed Messiah and Son of God, well, that meant making a lot of enemies very quickly. So unless they were earnestly seeking to know the truth about God and his kingdom, there were plenty of reasons to just forget about what they had seen and heard. The two Marys, on the other hand, they were filled with love for Jesus. They left the tomb quickly with fear, yes, but also great joy and ran to tell Jesus' disciples the good news. I can imagine their hope that Jesus was alive just made everything seem brighter, made everything sound clearer, even made things smell fresher, and then boom, there was Jesus right in front of them, greeting them. The two women fell to the ground, grasped onto Jesus' feet, and worshipped him. He was alive. He was here. It was really true. Yes, he still bore the wounds of crucifixion, but he wasn't tired. He wasn't weak. He was well. He was alive. Neither of them wanted to let Jesus go after all they had seen and witnessed. No more crosses. No more tombs. No more death. They wanted to hold on to Jesus. Jesus reassured them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It was the encouragement they needed. He knew them. He loved them. And he entrusted them, them, two women, for this extraordinary assignment to tell the disciples the good news, the best news. Jesus is alive. He's risen. And then the disciples would see for themselves. 
once Jesus' followers experienced the resurrected Jesus, it was clear that he was who he said he was. And when the Holy Spirit fell on them on Pentecost, their understanding would deepen even more. Jesus of Nazareth, their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, was Lord. He had come to save humanity from their sins and to open the kingdom of God, not just to the Jews, but to the people of all nations. As Peter proclaimed to a Roman centurion and his Gentile household in Acts chapter 10, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Everything. Even our understanding of death. Pain and suffering, sin and death are still with us. We know that, don't we? But they are not permanent. They do not have the last word. On the cross, with the sacrifice of his perfect sinless life, Jesus defeated sin and the curse of death. Satan, hell, and all the powers of darkness were put on notice. Their time is coming. Their reign will come to an end. For those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, the difficulties we face in this life are, as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, a slight momentary affliction, preparing us for a weight, eternal weight, of glory beyond all measure. Now granted, I confess, sometimes my wounds and griefs and sorrows feel heavier than momentary afflictions. But friends, Paul's making a comparison here. The glory of God, the power of his love shown to us in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the eternal weight of his glory is so great. It is beyond all measure. Our Lord is eternal and everlasting, and nothing that opposes him can stand in the face of his glory, power, and love. Even death itself must concede to Christ. We see that, don't we? The tomb was forced to release him. And one day, the grave will be forced to release us all in the resurrection of the dead. This is why, even in the face of disease, tragedy, and death, the anthem of those who put their faith in Jesus is, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. In human history, there are two eras. 
before Christ and in the year of our Lord. Now you can call it the common era and before the common era, but we all know who the central figure is. And so in this 2023rd year of our Lord, on Easter Sunday, you have a choice. You can, like the soldiers and the religious leaders, put out of your mind all you have seen and heard and know about Jesus and carry on business as usual. Life is life. Death is death. Nothing to see here. Or, like two women, both named Mary, two millennia ago, you can hear the good news and embrace with great joy Jesus and his resurrection. And when you encounter him, you worship him. You repent of your sins, and you put your life, your reputation, and your whole self into his hands so that he will be your Lord and your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, today, I pray for all of us who cannot get you out of our head. No matter how angry, how hurt, how much in pain and confusion and disorientation we are, Lord, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? And so, Lord, we do come to you this morning. And we ask you to make yourself known to us again. To make yourself present to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. To give us the Holy Spirit's power to worship you in spirit and in truth. To give us the grace and courage to confess in our hearts our sins. You know them, Lord. You know all about them. And you love us. Beggar, banker, prostitute, priest. You know all of us. Lord, please forgive us our sins. Thank you for welcoming us into your kingdom. Thank you that death does not have the final say, but you do. Lord, would you be our Lord? Would you be our Savior?
We hail you as king. And we pledge our love and our lives to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.